This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, growing calls to protect seasonal workers in New Zealand after a group of Tongans were left waiting for hours in the middle of rising floodwaters. They were on the roof for a good five, six hours. You know, as it was getting on and on, things that started to dawn on them that they may not be rescued. And Fiji is considering getting rid of a surfing law that allows anyone to surf anywhere they want. Details aren't known yet, but there's some concern it might roll back years of progress in the local surfing scene. Before the decree, you know, we didn't have much uh, local development or local presence in the surfing scene. And the Sandline Affair was a dramatic moment in PNG politics. And now there's a push to get the event immortalized in a Hollywood film. Where we'll be speaking to the man behind that campaign. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, Pacific Island leaders have announced that U.S. President Joe Biden is likely to visit the region. The declaration from the Micronesian leaders seems to indicate Mr. Biden may attend the Pacific Island Forum's Leaders Summit in Cook Islands later this year. To discuss the implications of this announcement, I'm joined now by Dr. Tarsisius Kabutalaka from the University of Hawaii. Good morning to you, Dr. Kabutalaka. Uh, good morning, Priyanka, and thank you for having me. Um, a very interesting statement here that was released by the Micronesian leaders. Now, we haven't heard from the U.S. side of things yet, um, but there is this indication that Biden will visit the region. What do you make of that dynamic, that Micronesia got out of in, ahead of the U.S., it seems? Well, the the actual wording in the uh, communique that came out of the Micronesia President's Summit was, and I quote, uh, Presidents welcome President Biden's plan uh, for the Leaders' Summit in the Pacific Islands region. Uh, and it's not very clear where that summit will be held. Uh, it's also not clear whether it is with the Pacific Islands Forum meeting or will it be a stopover after the Quad Summit that is planned to take place in Sydney, Australia, in the middle of this year. So nothing is clear as yet. Uh, and as you said, uh, there is no announcement from the White House uh, on this uh, on, on the planned visit to the Pacific. But it's interesting that the Micronesian leaders have chosen to make that statement. Um, and I think a couple of things. One is that, you know, it's coming out of uh, uh, the conclusion of the Compact Free Association negotiations with Palau, FSM, and the Marshall Islands. Uh, and who knows that in the discussions around the compact renegotiation, perhaps these came up. Or perhaps it was something that came up in discussions with the Pacific Islands Forum, although we haven't heard anything from the Pacific Islands Forum as yet. Uh, and so it's not very clear where this is coming from, except that it's mentioned uh, in the document coming out 
from the Micronesian President's Summit. Mm, yes, so there's still a lot unknown, a lot of questions. We just have that, I guess, one sentence from that um, communique, that document from the Micronesian Leaders' Summit. But let's, let's, I guess, imagine that this plan does go ahead and the US president does visit the region. How significant would that be? It will be really, really significant uh, if President Biden comes to the Pacific Islands because this will be the first U.S. president to visit the Pacific Islands. Uh, and it'll be huge in terms of U.S. presence in the region. We know that the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, was in Fiji in 2014 and then again in Papua New Guinea in 2018 for the APEC meeting, uh, and at which he met Pacific Island leaders, or at least the countries that have diplomatic relations with China on the side. So if it is true that President Biden is coming to the Pacific Islands, this will be a huge thing uh, for the U.S. and also for the Pacific Islands. The other interesting thing is that if it were true, and the fact that the Micronesian leaders have chosen to make the announcement in their communique, then it also demonstrates, you know, the strength in the, the, strength in the relationship between the United States and particularly the Kofa countries mm-hmm. in the micro, Micronesian region, and that is Palau, FSM, and the Marshall Islands. And as I said earlier on, it's coming off the renegotiation, the successful renegotiation of COFA in these three countries. And so it's, it will be big for the U.S., big for the Pacific Islands, and I think huge in terms of Micronesian leadership at the multilateral level uh, in the region. Mm. Um, and now, uh, Dr. Kabutalaka, you mentioned that China's, um, you know, influence on the region, that its, um, its leader, Xi Jinping, has re- visited a few times already. What, how does that play into perhaps um, President Biden's desire to come to the U.S.? Do you think it's too far a stretch to say this is in a direct response to China's growing influence in the Pacific? I think a lot of the things that the U.S. is doing is in response to uh, China's growing influence in the region and attempts to counter it. Uh, and, and I must make very clear to our li- listeners that we, um, as yet, do not really know whether Biden will be coming. Mm. Uh, and if the decision is made, uh, then I think it is a response, perhaps not directly to Xi Jinping's uh, visit in 2014 and 2018, but more to ramp up U.S. presence in the region. And what better way to have presence than to have the president of the United States uh, in the region? And could we see actually something tangible come out of this? Or would this more be, I guess, the the look of having the U.S., the sitting U.S. president be in the region? What what would, if the planned visit does go ahead, um, what would U.S. want out of this meeting? And what would Pacific leaders also want out of um, the U.S. president being here? 
Well, I think it will be a continuation of the meeting that took place in September of last year in Washington, D.C. at the White House, and which culminated in the U.S.-Pacific Partnership. Uh, And I assume that any meeting between the U.S. president and Pacific Island leaders will be a follow-up to that meeting. Uh, And, uh, you know, in that meeting, we've seen a three Uh, 11 points of declaration that were made uh, in September last year. And I would assume that, you know, subsequent meetings between the Pacific Island leaders and the U.S. president will look at ways of making those points materialize. It's a challenge for the U.S. because it is making a lot of promises. Uh, However, converting them into something tangible is complicated for the U.S., and particularly now, given the split in the Congress, and we have a House of Representatives that is dominated by Republicans. So, you know, as long as there is, if there is bipartisan support for the U.S. administration or the Biden administration's engagement with the region, then that would be good. Otherwise, it's going to be a challenge for for the White House. Mm, yes, considering uh, America's divided politics um, for the last, well, quite quite some time. Um, if you are just ju- tuning in to Pacific Beat, we're talking about, well, this this sort of tidbit that we had in this communique that kind of came out of the Micronesian Leaders Summit that mentioned that of a planned visit by the U.S. President Joe Biden to the region. There's some speculation that might mean that um, Mr. Biden will visit Cook Islands during the PIF Leaders Summit later this year. Um, I guess this morning is Dr. Tarsisius Kabut Taolaka from the University of Hawaii. We're talking about what the significance of that meeting might be. Um, uh, but uh, Tarsisius, this isn't the only meeting. Um, the Micronesian leaders will next be meeting up in Suva with other Pacific leaders for a special special Pacific Islands Forum leading leaders meeting. I, I wanted to turn into some of the politics in play there. Now, these Micronesian leaders, of course, had that, you know, a bit of a tiff with the rest of the Pacific Islands Forum. They left temporarily. Now they're all back on board, including Kiribati being the last player that's back back into its membership. They've said they want Nauru's candidate to be the next forum secretary general. We expect that to be part of discussions during the special leaders meeting happening in a few weeks. What do you make of that? Do you think this is something that they they might get that they um, or, or that will they be met by a bit of pushback from forum members? So my my understanding is that uh, an understanding has been reached between the other forum island countries and the Micronesian countries that as of next year, 2024, uh, the leadership or the secretary general of the Pacific Islands Forum position will be taken on by a Micronesian. Uh, And we've seen in the communique that came out uh, that they are supporting Nauru's candidacy for the position. My understanding also is that the current Secretary General, Henry Puna, uh, has decided to step down as of next year after his first term lapses. Uh, And so I see a transition to one of the Micronesian countries taking on the Secretary General of the forum. And uh, as we know, uh, Nauru has been 
nominated or Nauru's candidacy has been supported by the Micronesian countries. Mm, yes, so I guess that's expected um, to happen. Uh, and as, as I mentioned, Kiribati is also back in the fold after its, well, quite dramatic exit last year. Um, do you think that might change dynamics? Will Kiribati be looking to gain something um, as a result of its return? Yeah, I think also in the communique, there is that agreement that the office, the, the regional office in the Northern Pacific will be in Kiribati. Uh, and so what we are seeing is that the Micronesian countries asserting themselves at the regional level. And they're, you know, the biggest part of that is them mobilizing at the sub-regional level. And we've seen very proactive and assertive actions by the Micronesian countries, which is good. Uh, and this will, I think, facilitate their participation at the regional level. Uh, and so a good thing for Micronesia, and hopefully, you know, it will lead to a better cooperation amongst the regional countries. Yes, very interesting to see how these meetings all unfold. Uh, Dr. Kabutalaka, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. And that was Dr. Tassisius Kabutalaka from the University of Hawaii is speaking there. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Thursday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. A Tongan community leader in New Zealand is calling on the government to do more to protect specific seasonal workers in the wake of in the wake of ex-tropical cyclone Gabrielle. At least four people have died in the storm. Thousands of others have been displaced in the widespread flooding. On Tuesday, dozens of Tongan seasonal workers in Hastings had to be helicoptered to safety after floodwaters forced them to take shelter on rooftops for more than five hours. Auckland Tongan community leader Pakilao Manase Lua helped coordinate rescue efforts after seeing a Facebook live stream from one of the workers. Initially, I think they were taking it quite lightly as young men would, you know, and they're common young men who have been through uh, lots of, you know, disasters and, and weather events like this in Tonga. So they'll be used to tropical cyclones and, you know, the volcanic eruption last year. So they'll be pretty resilient. Um, they were laughing and um, mucking around as young men would initially, but then I think it dawned on them that they may not get rescued because they, they were on the roof for... A good five, six hours. You know, they were there from about nine in the morning or just after nine to about almost four o'clock in the afternoon. So, you know, as it was getting on and on, I think it started to dawn on them that they may not get rescued. So, yeah, they were starting to then realise the gravity of the situation. You know, there was hypothermia risks and all that sort of stuff. And eventually, after a few tense hours, they were rescued. Uh, that must have been a relief. It was a big relief, um, mainly because we we were cut off from um, communicating to them on the Facebook because the battery ran out on the phone at around 11 o'clock. And then I managed to get hold of the Tongan representative who's managing them while they're here and uh, managed to get an update from him. And he said that the boys are in good spirits. They were safe but cold up on the um, up on the roof, and yet, but they were not yet rescued. So we kept putting pressure on um, you know the services to see where things are at. You know, totally understand they were swamped, and you know they have to prioritise and look at other people who were in the same predicament. Um, but you know, my concern was that this was a large number. You know, 21 in this case, and there were others. There were other groups of Tuvalu, Samoan, 
RSC workers all over Hawke's Bay who were in the same boat, you know. So um, for me, they should have prioritised the number. Right. So do you think more could have been done to help these men? Just the sheer length of time it took. you know. And again, I appreciate that emergency services were swamped and they have to basically operate in a stressful situation and make a call as they see it. Um, but I'm just speaking totally from a uh, community perspective. Our concern was that these young men of our communities were stuck up on those roofs. They've been invited here by New Zealand to help pick fruit and to help our economy, you know, and, and uh, we, we have to take care of them as guests who are actually helping the New Zealand economy with work that no one in New Zealand wants to do, you know, but we bring these people over from the Pacific in particular and we have a duty of care. So that's the angle I'm taking here. And, and these are vulnerable people in our communities. Given these extreme weather events are becoming more frequent, do you think there's lessons that can be learned from this uh, to, to improve the safety of seasonal workers in New Zealand? There are big lessons to be learned, um, not just in this isolated case, but um, in terms of the program itself and how it might be better uh, streamlined to not to have such a social impact on our families back home. You know, we bring young dads over from the islands and leave mum and the kids back back home. That has social consequences as well, you know. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen some of those unfortunate um, isolated incidences. It's a great scheme, you know. It helps people out economically back home, but it does have a cost socially, and we need to also um, recognise that. And I think it goes for um, the case around pastoral care and also equity. Are we really providing these people with the, the due diligence and care, duty of care that they deserve, given they're here doing work that's valuable to our economies that nobody wants to do? And we call it unskilled labour, yet if they're not there, that these industries fall over. So I would argue that they're very valuable, and, and to call them just unskilled migrant labour is, uh, yeah, but a, a, a bit of a concern. That was a Tongan community leader, Pakilao Amanase Lua, based in Auckland, speaking there to reporter Mackenzie Smith. Hold the front page! And now it's time to find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning to you, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Now, um, Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau has visited uh, Australia, Canberra, in fact, and met with Anthony Albanese in Australia. Um, he sat in an, on Parliament, I believe, just yesterday um, and was welcomed into Parliament by all the MPs here in Australia. Let's take a listen, Kyle, before we get started in the news of this event. Um, let's take a listen to Prime Minister Albanese, I believe, and what he had to say about Prime Minister Kalsikar's visit to the country. One of the things that we've agreed in the Pacific Island Forum is that we in the Pacific need to secure our own region, our own region here in the Pacific. And the Pacific family needs to look after each other. The agreement recognises that Australia and Vanuatu's security interests are deeply intertwined and it lays out a framework for strengthening our partnership even further. Yes, that was 
Uh, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese talking about, uh, well, talking during Vanuatu Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau's visit to Parliament, but as we heard there, speaking more broadly about the the closer ties between Australia and the Pacific. Well, that's what at least Australia wants to see. Kyle, what else can you tell us about this visit? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, a lot happened in a lot of ways. He did, uh, Mr. Kalsakau, he did enter to that big gun salute and honour guard uh, in sunny Canberra uh, yesterday today, but basically it was just all about, um, I guess, reinforcing that economic support which Australia has pledged um, for pretty much the last six months now. So at the top of that list, uh, they actually mentioned they'll be building a new security hub uh, for Vanuatu, which you might remember Penny Wong actually announced uh, last December during her visit uh, to the region. So that'll entail things like disaster relief, aviation safety and law enforcement, uh, as well as things like increased patrols, defence collaboration and, and crackdowns on illegal fishing and things like that. Yeah, very interesting. I wonder if it include a, a bit of cybersecurity as well, considering uh, Vanuatu's uh, struggle recently around that big cyber hacking um, yeah, crisis, I guess, <laughs> that, that put the government in. And Australia did help out for that. Now this uh, cybersecurity, well, not cybersecurity, sorry, security hub that's going to be built in Vanuatu. Is there anything else that got outlined? I can confirm cybersecurity was, uh, was also on the list, okay, uh, we as go. well as the construction of uh, Vanuatu. Council of Ministers, which uh, tragically burnt down, uh, burnt down recently as well. There's also the Air, Air Vanuatu, which I know a team from DFAT at the moment is over there working working to uh, to get get that airline back uh, back on its feet, as well as those government uh, government services, like you said. One of the other interesting things that uh, that came out of it though was uh, Kalsko actually endorsed uh, endorsed Australia's bid to uh, to host the Climate Forum, that mm-hmm. COP31, yes, in yeah. 2026. Which, given how outspoken Vanuatu is on climate change, is, is pretty. It's a pretty big deal. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that um, Vanuatu actually has that um, advisory opinion bid. Um, they're hoping to get climate change to the International Court of Justice to get them to issue an advisory opinion. And their uh, vote on that, which Vanuatu is campaigning behind, is happening next week. Australia has also said they'd support that. Now Vanuatu is saying it'll support Australia in this COP23 um, or COP31, sorry, bid. Uh, very, very interesting stuff there. It's like a good old-fashioned love fest, really. Yes, there which, which, a lot of those, <laughs> yes which a lot of those um, diplomatic meetings can be. So I guess it's up to us, the media, and, and uh, you listening to keep an eye on those promises and see, see if they actually pan out. Um, now let's head uh, to, well, West Papua, the Papua region of Indonesia. We've been following this hostage crisis there with uh, Philip Mertens, the New Zealand pilot kidnapped by West Papuan separatists. Now diplomats have been deployed to the region to help. Do we know exactly what they'll do? Yeah, so three New Zealand diplomats and two from uh, the Indonesian Foreign Affairs Agency uh, have been deployed uh Basically, to monitor the progress uh, in hopes of, of bringing him home uh, home alive. So, um, not a, not a lot of information given about exactly what they'll do, but you can assume they'll attend things like high level meetings and they'll help with the intelligence gathering process. But I think just for the families, it's probably reassuring to, I guess, have some boots on the ground um, just just to ensure that you know uh, everyone's doing everything they can to to get Mr. Merton's uh, home alive. But uh, it actually follows the release of that video yesterday. I'm not not sure if you saw it of uh, yeah. Yeah. Of uh, Mr. Merton's posing with the with the separatists and 
you know, shaking hands and, and sort of being forced to buddy up with them, which was probably pretty awkward, if anything. Yes. Well, I guess we don't know the context behind the, the photos, if, if he was forced or, or if, he, if he did so willingly. Those photos were released by the independence um, fighters from in West Papua themselves. Yeah, very, very interesting um, sort of situation that's going in there. I, I wish I was... I was a fly on the wall, um, mm. a part of a part of that because um, very interesting and, and potentially tragic. I don't know if you heard, Carl. We had um, uh, an expert, Camelia, uh, Doctor Camelia, on a few days ago, who's talking about the situation and, and told us about a previous hostage situation in the '90s, very similar. The West Papuan group taking hostages um, of researchers at that time, and it ended quite bloodily in bloodshed with mm. the Indonesia sending military in. So hopefully these diplomats that have deployed can can work out a peaceful resolution, right? Yeah, I do remember hearing that. I mean, I guess if uh, to, to be the optimist, uh, the, the West Papuan separatists, they have seemed to have changed their tone in recent days, which okay. is good. I remember at the very start of it, they were sort of saying, oh, look, we won't be afraid to do this and that if our, if our needs aren't met. But then the, I guess the rhetoric started to change to, no, we need him to help us give, give, give us flying lessons and things like that. He won't be harmed so long as you, you know, do what we say. So, yeah, we'll maybe that means that, you know, they're, 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 they'll, they'll you know, want to keep him alive, essentially. <laughs> well, let's let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, yes, let's hope for a peaceful end to that. Um, and now let's head to Solomon Island. Some sports news here. The national soccer captain has signed uh, in Australia. Wow, that's pretty pretty big news. Who will he play for? Yeah, so uh, Mikael Lilialafa. So uh, he's actually set to join the National Premier League. So yeah, like you said, he's the uh, Solomon Islands national captain, 31 years old. He's been been around for a little while now, but uh, he's actually signed with the South Australian side, uh, FK uh, Beograd in uh, in Adelaide. I'm sure I've said that name wrong, and apologies for that. <laughs> but um, but no, pretty good club too. Um, the National Premier League. It's basically the second tier competition. Um, right. Below Below, below the A-League, um, national competition. Um, yeah, lots of really good soccer gets played there. Many Pacific act- Islanders in those teams, in Australian teams? Uh, there's a few scattered around. So this team uh, in particular is actually coached by uh, the former Vanuatu Federation technical director, Joshua uh, Joshua James. And oh. uh, it's also it also features Vanuash, uh, Vanuatu's, uh, one of their national midfielders, uh, Jared Clark. So okay. a few Pacific ties, or specifically Vanuatu ties, are uh, in this particular team. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Interesting to see how he goes. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very exciting. And maybe you said this was the lower tier, and then potentially, you know, get some players into the higher tier. Is, is it a streamline to? I guess we'll, we'll see. Yeah, it's it's basically the second tier competition. I mean, yeah, the, the A leagues or oh, soccer in Australia can be pretty complicated. There's always been talk of yeah, the hope, hopes of one day the national Premier League sort of being the national second tier competition of Australia, where there's promotion and relegation between yeah. the A League and the NPL, but. Um, um, but yeah, hasn't hasn't come to pass. It might one day, but but yeah, look, like I said, there's still great soccer that gets played. You'll see a lot of the A League players play in the MPL during the off season and things like that. Um, uh, so yeah, look, he's going to have his work cut out, no doubt. But like I said before, he is 31 years old. He's done a, a little bit already. He's a former Auckland City player. I know he's won a, an OFC Champions League title in the past, and he's even competed in four FIFA uh, Futsal World Cups as well. So oh, very interesting. So yeah, at 31. He might be sort of entering the swan song of his career, but yeah, you never know. We've seen Brian Caltech in, re- in you know recent months, you know, get get an A League gig at the age of twenty nine. So yeah. it's never over. Well, I'm thirty three, and I hope my sporting uh, competitive sporting days aren't 
behind me, Kyle. So um, <laughs> let's not discount it's certainly this Certainly not behind yet. me. I'm 36. Yes, all the best. And maybe this means that um, maybe the National Premier League of Australia or even the A League of Australia can um, maybe play some matches in the Pacific. Won't that be cool? That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, that is Kyle Evans. Thank you, Kyle, for bringing us those uh, stories from around the region. Thank you, Priyanka. And we've got a bit, bit of sporting news, if you can call it that. I don't know if surfing it does qualify for, for sport, um, but I'm sure some surfers listening might have something to say about that. But um, in Fiji, there's an interesting decree that might be overturned. The decree actually allows more people really anyone to surf anywhere they want. There are talks of that being reversed. We'll find out why coming up. And the the sand the um the very interesting sand line affair in Papua New Guinea was a major event for politics there. And now someone wants to turn it into a Hollywood movie. We'll be speaking to Jerry Singerock later in the show. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. When you're younger, you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual until you're much older. Then you realize that you're proud to be part of this ritual. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia on this Thursday morning. Hope you're having a lovely start to the day. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. This is Pacific Beach. Surfing and politics aren't are two words you rarely hear in the same sentence, but in Fiji, surfing has at times been a politically charged issue. That was the case back in 2010 when the then government passed a decree that allowed anyone to surf on any wave in the country, removing exclusive access rights some tourist resorts had over popular surf breaks. It's been credited with promoting Fiji as a surf tourism destination, but it was controversial because it also removed the rights of traditional landowners over their coastlines and fishing grounds. Now, though, the new government, the Rambuka government, has signaled its attempt to repeal the decree, leaving surfers and surf, tur- surf tourism operators asking what exactly will replace it. Liam Fox with this report. Fiji is home to world-class surf breaks. Perhaps the most famous is Cloud Break off the west coast of the main island, Viti Levu. Today, anyone can surf there, locals and tourists, but that wasn't always the case. Once, you had to shell out thousands of dollars to stay at a nearby resort which had exclusive access rights to the waves. That changed in 2010, when the then-military dictatorship led by Frank Bainimarama passed its surfing decree. Part of it reads, The decree gives access to and the use of any surfing area in Fiji by any person. Any person may now use any surfing area in Fiji without obtaining any permit or approval and without the payment of any monies. The decree expressly prohibits any exclusive use of any surfing area. Not only that, anyone who prevented a surfer from accessing a wave could be fined and sent to jail. The stated aim was to promote Fiji as a premier surfing destination and allow locals, not just foreigners, to get involved in surfing-related businesses like tour operators and accommodation providers. It was also hoped the decree would help develop the sport of surfing in the country. 
something the president of the Fiji Surfing Association, Hannah Bennett, says it did successfully. Before the decree, you know, we didn't have much uh, local development or local presence in the surfing scene. And since that, since the decree in 2010, it has opened it up for everyone, including the locals. So from a surfing standpoint, yeah, we've got more presence um, in the lineup, which is amazing. But it's also opened up opportunities towards career pathways and opportunities for our surfers to also take um, their surfing to the next level and, and go and compete abroad. But all that could be about to change. Frank Bainimarama is no longer in power after national elections late last year and the new government has signalled its intent to repeal several of his decrees and laws, including the surfing decree. The new Deputy Prime Minister and Tourism Minister Bill Gavoka has long been a critic of the decree as it removed the rights of Indigenous landowners to control access to their coastlines and fishing grounds. It also banned other activities from surfing areas like fishing. Mr Gavoka has been quoted in local media over the last week as saying the decree had cost some villagers millions of dollars in potential income and that it will be repealed. That sparked concern in surfing and surf tourism circles, largely because of a lack of information about the possible change. Here's Hannah Bennett from the Surfing Association again. I was a little bit alarmed at first, um, but at the same time, uh, I think as part of the agenda with this new government and, you know, I don't think it's a negative thing. I think it's totally reasonable for the surfing decree to be re-looked at. I think there is some common ground that we can we can come to, you know, where the indigenous custodians, uh, you know, can have their rights and and get what they need. and. At the same time, local surfers can have access because a lot of these local surfers come from these from these villages and these golden gullies that have um, custodianship over the reef. Pacific Beat has spoken to several people in the surf tourism industry, locals and foreigners, and all expressed alarm at the potential repeal of the decree, though none wanted to comment publicly. At this stage, it's unclear what the government's plan is, whether it will repeal the decree in its entirety, amend it or replace it with new regulations. Mr Gavoka has been unavailable for comment. Very interesting. Who knew surfing could be so politically charged? That was Liam Fox with that report. You're listening to Pacific Beat. A former PNG Defence Force commander is heading to Hollywood to pitch his autobiography for the silver screen. Jerry Singerakis Abuka tells the story of the Sandline Affair when, as head of the army in 1997, sorry, he rebelled against the PNG government because it hired overseas mercenary fighters to stop, to stop the conflict in Bougainville. Jerry Singerak joins us this morning. Uh, welcome to Pacific Beat, Mr. Singerak. Good morning. Good morning, uh, ABC. Good morning. Um, good morning, Pacific. Yes, yes. And good morning to you. Now, Mr. Singerak, you've decided to go to Hollywood to pitch this movie. How did it all come about? I didn't decide. It was highly recommended that I go to Hollywood. So it's the other way around. <laughs> right. Um, I was, yeah, I was pre- really privileged uh November last year, my my publishers took my book to Miami Book Fair, the largest book fair in USA, and amongst the books uh, selected for a possible book to screen, uh, mine was highly recommended, and that's how I was 
given a rare opportunity to pitch my book uh, in Hollywood. Yeah, a rare opportunity indeed. This is the first time I've heard of something like this. Uh, so do you know who, you, who you'll be meeting? Who exactly is interested in your book? Yes, uh, yeah, I will be before the movie director, screenwriter John Shaki from Hollywood. Uh, he will be, it will be before a panel of seven Hollywood directors and I will pitch individually. And at the end of uh, my pitch, uh, one one of the uh, movie companies will uh, offer me, if it's good enough to make it to Hollywood, uh, will offer me an opportunity to enter into a, a contract. Well, that that sounds so um, surreal, Mr. Singerok. It sounds like it's from a movie itself. Um, how do you feel nervous about the the prospect of of pitching your your own story to to this group of Hollywood bigwigs? Yeah, I didn't imagine in my living time that I'll be given this opportunity. But uh, now that it's happened, I just have to psychologically uh, prepare myself for. For the the ultimate interview, so yeah, as a soldier, I take what it comes. Well, I, I wonder if you could give maybe maybe this will help you um, as a, as a sort of dry run for the uh, actual pitch. Do you mind telling us and, and the listeners what what your Hollywood pitch is? They often say elevator pitch um, f- for the movie. Yes, I'll just give you a summary of what uh, it will be like. Mm-hmm. This is a true story. In 1997, 12 brave, fearless soldiers put their career on the line by detaining, exposing, and expelling Sunline mercenaries from Africa who were in Papua New Guinea to use Soviet attack helicopters and heavy weapon system to identify rebel targets, neutralize the enemy, and reopen the largest open copper and gold mine on the island of Bougainville. I am General Jerry Singerok, former commander of Papua New Guinea Defense Force, I was sworn to serve my country with honor and loyalty. When I was given the executive orders by the government to execute an executive order, which I believe tantamounted to international um, bloodshed and against criminal uh, against uh, international laws. I had to re-examine my conscience, and I knew that the operations coming, upcoming operations, was illegal and had no merit of the whole operations. Well, so in March, March nineteen ninety-seven. I put 12 best Special Force Unit soldiers and executed Operation Rousing Quick. 
We detained, we expelled over 50 mercenaries with the British uh, CEO. And we exposed the government corrupt deals. And like Sir Edmund Beck said, and I quote, all is necessary for triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. We were honorable men, we were good men, we were sworn to serve our country with honor, with dignity, for duty. Today, whilst my integrity is intact, the people of Bougainville are free and they can enjoy their lives forever. Thank you very much. That's uh, just a little bit of background of how it's going to be like, but I'm going to yeah. refine it. Yes, wow. Well, Mr. Singerok, it sounds like it has a lot in there, foreign mercenaries, mercenaries uh, corruption, um, you know, fighting. It sounds like an action movie. Uh, but do you find it difficult, Mr. Singerok, because I can tell you're very proud of that moment where you, uh, you know, in, in your account stood up to the government um, to do what you think thought was right for the people of Papua New Guinea. Is it difficult being so close to the story and then trying to, I guess, sell it for, for this Hollywood movie? Well, somebody's got to tell a story and I've got my story to tell. And and that's why, I mean, the fact that I did expose the corrupt deal, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea at that time, and his finance minister and defense minister resigned. So it means quite a lot when when you can take a secretive deal, which, uh, which I believe is a, is a contract to, to murder innocent people, to the public. The public takes ownership of, of, of that particular uh, thematical issue. So I believe beyond reasonable doubt that uh, there's always timing. I mean, it's, there's time for everything. And, and, and the timing, I believe, at that time was right for me to expose, uh, given the, 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 um, the com complexity of the whole subject. And, and knowing that I could end up in jail for what I did. But I think the, the biggest thing that I, I possess is I was, uh, I'm, I'm properly trained. I'm a graduate of a series of um, very top-level military institutions. So I come with a, with a broad background of understanding the, the importance of uh, uh, duties of soldiers. I mean, we're, we're there to protect uh, national interests, and, and uh, we're not there to destroy our own people. Mm. But when you, when you operate in a, in a country where, where there's chaos and where the failing states, I mean... It, it, it calls for good men and women to rise up yes. because without that voice, we will not make a difference. And, and I did make my difference. And um, I leave something behind for Papua New Guinea and the rest of the region, which is the account of uh, my personal experience of the challenges that I, I faced. And um, Mr. Singerak, if if your film does get picked up and it does get made, obviously they'll be casting for the key key people there. Who Who would you like to play yeah. yourself? I, I have no idea. I have absolutely. I mean, it's it's a, it's an unknown world. I, I I have no idea. I'm not even at that stage. I'm just focusing on on my pitch. I've got seven opportunities to convince one of the big um, directors to 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 get uh, <laughs> to be hooked uh, <laughs> on my pitch. And and once once uh, 
if I land a contract, then well, that's the time to start thinking how do we prepare ourselves for the the screen uh, screenplay and. So you haven't you haven't been thinking whatever. about any action stars who might um, might be in your film. No, not not at this stage. Not at, at this stage. <laughs> well, how about how about you know? It sounds like an action movie, and every blockbuster needs one of its you know key scenes that you see in the trailer that hooks the audience in. What what, what you know? Do you have? Can you think of a key scene? I can think of mine that I would have in the movie. But what do you see as the key scene that'll be um, that you'll want to highlight during during your meetings with these uh, Hollywood directors? Well, I mean, if they want advanced discussion, I mean, you, you got this British clown called Tim Spicer, mm-hmm. um, who who sees us uh, as coloured people like Africa. I mean, he goes to Africa, Sierra Leone, Angola, uh, Nigeria. They do their thing, and he thinks that he can just turn up in in the peaceful Pacific and 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 bring mercenaries into the Pacific, and because we're black, I mean, the guy uh, is is arrogant. He got it all wrong. <laughs> so, Mr. Singerak, that's exactly so the the scene that I was thinking as well when you met Tim Spicer, and and that that was the key scene for me as well. I, I mean, can you tell us what was that meeting like? Did it when you were going through it? Did it feel like it was out of a movie, even when it was the reality of it? Well, we we, we were on edge. I mean, I got twelve soldiers. They they they're all camped up. I mean, this is war. This is real. You know. I mean. For the first time in their life, they, they're going to do something out of the extraordinary. And, you know, I select the best time, which is uh, 16th of March, 1997, at the headquarters of Defense Force. I mean, it's slightly raining, and you've got Special Force all camped up with night vision goggles and and just uh, surveillance, uh, putting, providing surveillance at the commander's office when, when this uh, clown walks in and uh, he thought everything was okay. And he walks up into, and it's a pre-arranged meeting at seven o'clock. But there's five special force guys waiting for him in my office. He walks in, and um, a current member for uh, a national member called uh, Captain Belden Nama is now in the national parliament. I mean, he goes towards uh, uh, Tim Spicer, and he says, "Welcome to the land of the unexpected." And Tim Spicer, is this a joke? <laughs> he grabs uh, Tim Spicer by the shoulder, and he he uh, does a judo throw, a forbidden judo throw called Uchimanga, and throws him, and he's completely um, floored on the concrete uh, floor, and his uh, black jack, uh, uh, leather uh, briefcase is thrown all o- over the floor with documents and of uh, secret documents of enemy targets and government contracts and um, and amongst it uh, thousands of uh, US dollars in cash and the guy is uh, is uh, is completely uh, shocked and Wait, is so paralyzed on the floor nama nama um through spicer on the floor yeah picked him up and and completely um i mean he's he's concussed tim spicer is concussed on the floor and he's the mercenary the, the, he's, sent he's, in. he's the mercenary sent in to try and um you know send in he's troops. the ceo he's the ceo right. he's the british former lieutenant colonel from the scots guard in the british a very dignified uh, unit but he decides to 
go for uh, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune. He goes well, to Africa and 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 um, and brings in Africans to go and uh, do it uh, blood diamond style. Mr. Singer, Singerak, this I think this is the scene of um, Spicer being put on the cement floor. I mean, we're almost out of time. We've just got a minute to go. Um, but I wanted to ask you just finally. Do you think if Hollywood does knock you back, would you come back to Papua New Guinea and see if the story can be produced locally? No, I've already been offered by Netflix. So it's oh. not an issue. Oh, so it might be on Netflix? Yeah, we've already got um, somebody from Australia uh, already made contact. Okay, so well. So I'm, I'm safe. I'm safe. <laughs> well, Mr. Singerak, <laughs> I'm excited to see your story on, on the big screen or the small screen, wherever it is. But um, thank you for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you. Thank you. That was former PNG Defence Commander Jerry Singerak speaking there. I don't know about that story about Tim Spicer, the uh, CEO of that mercenary organization, being uh, flattened on the floor by um, uh, by Nama there. Uh, very interesting stuff. But it brings us to the end of Pacific Beat here. Uh, I'll be back same time next week. <laughs>